You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximise their success and how HSBC is helping them. This is the second part of our discussion on this topic. To listen to part one of our conversation, please click on the previous podcast in this feed. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. I'm going to move it on now, but to, to take it back to uh, uh, the issue of productivity, which has been mentioned early on. Now, I'm a banker, not a farmer, uh, although I'm always learning more and more about the industry. Um, but the starting point for me seems to be sort of fairly obvious. But if you can improve your profitability through your productivity, and at the same time, that's going to improve your sustainability, then that's an obvious starting point. So I, I just wondered in terms of uh, the four of you, if there's any sort of tips or positive experiences or learns that you've got in terms of making a big improvement to the uh, productivity of the farm, which has benefited your sustainable footprint as well. Well, I, I suppose predominantly a beef and sheep area here. I've really tipped the cart over a couple of years ago when I decided to go out with sheep production. Uh, you know, m- much to my neighbour's disbelief, um, because I'm, I'm the fifth generation farmer here. So far as I know, even before our family was here, so you're going back over 200 years, there was always sheep on the farm. But we, we decided to go out with sheep production and we, we ramped up the, the beef production. Um, so we, we got two beef systems here. We have a sickle cow system and we also buy in dairy calf. Dairy, dairy bull, cross cows, and really them. Um, everything we do here is, is stored bread. We don't fatten anything here because, in a way, unfortunately, we're too far away from the grain. So it's much easier, I think, to ship the livestock away to the East Country uh, where, where there's plenty of pulses and grains to, to do the job. Um, now, as I mentioned before, uh, beef has had a bit of black in recent years about carbon footprints. It always comes up. Um, Wales, we're looking Wales where we have fantastic climate to grow grass. That's what we can grow. We can grow grass probably better in Wales than anywhere else in the UK because of the climate that we have. Rainfall is in abundance usually. So it, it makes sense that most of the livestock that, that is reared is actually in the west of the country. And it's the same, I'm sure, down the west, west of England as well. So what we've done, I suppose, is when we... Some interesting things came up. I was very, very uh, interested in, in actually uh, carbon footprinting the business, purely to try and mitigate the stick that we producers were having. It, what became quite clear quite suddenly was that there is a challenge for suckler bread beef because the suckler cow uh, does suck in quite a bit of carbon because of the production uh, uh, that she has. Now, it's one of the key performance indicators of a circular cow is that you need one calf per cow in every year. Our year is 365 days, the last time I looked. So that is one of the key performance indicators that you look for in circular cow production. And that is vital. If you can produce that, if you can achieve that, then you are basically mitigating the carbon footprint of that cow. And obviously then the production of that calf, as well as the cow, keeping the cow is vitally important. So, we're purely forage-based here. The 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 suckler side of the, of the business, they have absolutely no port in inputs. It's purely silage and grass, um, so that helps. What's interesting in in the dairy uh, beef side of the thing, uh, of the business, something I learned very quickly is that 
when the calf comes into the unit, into the business, it comes with absolutely a zero carbon footprint because all the carbon produced, that's produced that calf goes on the dairy cow. Um, the only carbon actually that is attached to that calf when it comes on farm is the actual diesel that we burnt in, 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 in transporting it on farm. Now, we obviously try and source our calves as closely as possible, so we, we mitigate that. One of the main things we did when we went out of sheep production was actually transform the way that we graze the farm. So we've now gone on to rotational grazing. What's that? What basically that, that's enabled us to do is we keep a, a closer eye on the actual grazing platforms that we have. We've more than doubled the livestock units per hectare that we hold. And we certainly, uh, well, actually, the, the, the fertilizer usage has gone down. So in a way, that has had a hell of an impact on the carbon footprint of the farm. We've become more efficient uh, in producing more kilos per hectare, but by doing that, we're actually using a heck of a lot uh, less outputs. But as mentioned before, and as Jake's mentioned as well, you know, soil health is absolutely vital in, in order to maximize the grass that we grow here. So we're keeping a, a keen eye on, on the actual soil health so that we, we can produce as much grass as we possibly can from every acre. And that then returns into as much kilos of beef that we produce per acre and we're doing it as efficiently as we possibly can. What, what strikes me is that there are so many different aspects to production, you know, whichever part of agriculture you're in. And um, it's the attention to detail and understanding all the component parts and making sometimes small and sometimes larger changes that, that, that really improve each component part of production. Anybody else got something that they'd like to step in and talk about when it comes to uh, productivity? Yeah, Martin. Um, yeah, that's one of the things that made me fall in love with being a pig farmer in the early days was the ability to influence production and you know the management things that you could do. and and see that you know how the, they repaid you, where you made a good decision and you, you spotted a problem early and you acted upon that. And that was, you know, in, improving productivity was, was sort of one of the enjoyable things of being a pig farmer, besides all the other things that maybe aren't quite so enjoyable. But within that productivity, one of the things that uh, has helped us is, is we're part of a benchmarking group with our vet practice. And we have a number of like-minded producers who are happy to share information. I always think that, uh, you know, if you're talking to fellow-minded producers, it's one of the greatest ways of imp improving your productivity by sharing some information. Because if you're happy to share and other people are, you, you can, the, the sort of whole part tends to be greater. And within the group, you know, everybody's sort of made significant progress uh, in terms of productivity. I'm going back a very long time now, but when I was uh, just about leaving school and uh, I, I worked for British Steel for a brief period of time. And at the time, they used to talk about a Japanese uh, world word Kaizen, which meant a continuous improvement for the better. And at the time, they were trying to introduce this concept of Kaizen into the production of steel. And it's something that I keep referring back to in my head when I think about the changes that are going on now, where in all aspects of production and agriculture, we're looking for those Kaizen improvements, the, the, the little things that make uh, make a difference, but, but really add up. We talked earlier on about the fact that uh, net zero will only be achieved by, nationally by a combination of reducing emissions, but also by storing more carbon to balance out the, the equation. and 
Um, you know, defining net zero is a, is a topic we could spend a long time talking about. But what I'd like to pick up on is just experience of, of sequestration that you've got. And, and Paul, I might come straight back to you, actually, because I know you've got an area of Pete Moreland and that, you know, I mean, I'm interested to know how that figures in your sustainability plans. Yeah, I mean, a quarter of the farm here is is a peat bog, basically. You know, I, I can't I can't go on it with a tractor most of the year. And even if I did, I couldn't do anything with it. Um, it's too rough, too wet. So it, there's times when I say, oh, I wish I could swap this for, you know, 60, 70 acres of, of, of Jake's land, uh, you know. Um, but having said that, and, and it was, you know, it was, when the auditors came initially to do uh, the carbon audit, they were absolutely rubbing their hands with glee when they saw that piece of land because not only is it storing a hell of a lot of carbon, it's still producing something on top of it because we put our circle of cows down there for most of the summer. It's ideal for them. Um, so, you know, there's about three to four metres of peat below ground. And I don't think they hit the bottom after that, but they ran out of stick to, to, to try and measure it. But basically, you know, that, that is a massive carbon sink. Um, but at, at the same time, that, that type of land is, is still producing beef, uh, you know, uh, throughout the year. So, And I think that's absolutely vital. The fact that you have peatland or, or any sort of carbon type storage uh, soils doesn't mean to say that it isn't agriculturally uh, productive. It can be. Um, th there's a policy here in Wales where, you know, we cannot um, plant trees on peatland anymore. Um, in the past, you would tend to, to, to plant trees on the wettest part of your field because you can't do anything else with it. We can't do that anymore. But it's absolutely vital that they don't curtail any agricultural activities on that particular land. So long as they're not obviously damaging uh, the soil structure, there's absolutely no reason why we can't farm sustainably on that type of land. So uh, equally, you know, we, we have a heft on the Hirithog Mountain. Hirithog Mountain is about 26,000 acres. Uh, we, we, we as, as well as other farmers, have hefts on that. And again, that is peat, peat soils, but it's producing sheep meat. So again, you know, there's the fact that we have these um, carbon uh, type soils doesn't mean to say that they can be productive at the same time. No, that's really interesting. Um, uh, what, what about the other three in terms of uh, sequestration opportunities that you're considering? Uh, anything to add to the conversation? Yeah, I was just going to say to um, to Paul, I mean, what, what a fantastic asset to have, you know, with, within the farming infrastructure. And I think um, when we talk about um, carbon trading and carbon offsetting uh, in, in businesses outside of agriculture, I think that has got the potential to be quite a significant generator of income for you, you know, going, going further forward. And the fact that you're measuring it and you, you know what you've got in there, you know what you're, you're adding to it year on year, then absolutely brilliant. So, I mean, for, for us, we, we're looking at um, sequestration in sort of organic matter in the fields. We regularly test soils. Uh, we've got uh, loss on ignition tests that have been going up about 0.2 of a percent a year for the last seven years. And, you know, that you can argue loss on ignition might not be the best test, but it's one that we've done for years. So even if the numbers are wrong, the fact that it's increasing uh, has got to be a positive thing. We're also now looking at active carbon, potassium permanganate tests to actually define um, in a little bit more detail what, what's going on in there. And, and that's an exciting stream that the industry is, is working towards. So how can we, how can we kind of monetize 
the carbon that we are um, sequestering for, for other businesses. You know, there'll, there'll be an awful lot of sustainability uh, programs and companies setting up that will help people along those journeys. We're doing a bit of work with one of them to, to remove carbon from their business, but then there'll be an inherent bit of carbon that they just can't get rid of. And, and that's where um, farmers, I think, will have a role to play in being able to take that and get rewarded for doing it. But what would be really great is if you could then um, start a relationship with that company. So, um, you know, for a, for a bit of a premium, they could come out and have a, a farm walk and have a look at their, you know, their bit of carbon. They could train their senior management staff on the, you know, on the, the, the farm or whatever. Um, so I think from our, our LEAF point of view, linking environment and farming, that communication between um, our customers, uh, you, must, you must find this in the bank, um, Martin, that the communication and, and that relationship you know, doesn't want to just be a, a greenwash, right? We've written a, a check for a, a six trees in the Amazon. Well, let's invest that in our local farm. We can see driving the kids to school. Um, once a year, we get to go and have a look at it and we can have a tour around. And actually, that's probably more valuable to, to both parties. So carbon sequestration, I think, and, and biodiversity um, improvements, I think are going to be really exciting kind of enterprises and, and, and markets in the future. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest and a lot of emotion in the whole subject and uh, in in making that sort of community link you just described. I think the engagement levels would rise significantly and that will only build the momentum for more improvement. So I, I, I'd buy into that entirely. I think I think I just my question with all of this is if you know the way we measure in dairy now is um, kilos of carbon per liter of milk. So you've got on the my numbers, it says I've got a kilo of carbon for every kilo of milk. But this is my understanding of this is unclear. So if that's true, I produce over 20 million kilos of carbon a year. In my farming block, have I even got enough space to sequester my own carbon to get to net zero, let alone, you know, taking some carbon off of HSBC or, you know, British Airways, you know, who's, who's going to sequester my carbon? I'm quite happy to, I'm quite help, happy to help you out there, Neil. Um, I'm sure I've got plenty to spare for you. If we can sit down and talk figures, I'm sure we can do something. But that's interesting because we had, uh, we've had a various climate meetings with Arla on the, what they call climate check. And, you know, in their opinion, land that is very high in so soil organic content already, which is dairy farms. So peat is the ultimate carbon sink. Arla's opinion was these, these permanent pastures, they're, they've like topped out. They're not going to sequester more carbon. They'll keep sequestering what they've got and they'll produce food, but you're not going to... And I guess, you know, your peat bowl is three metres deep. How much more carbon is it going to sequester over the life? It's great that you don't drain it and release all that carbon by burning it or put it in garden centres. That's great. But is it, is it really a carbon sink? Are permanent pastures really a carbon sink? And if they're not, who's going to sequester all the carbon? And if we stop farming here and say, right, OK, UK farming will be net zero because we've, you know, 10% of us have gone out and stopped doing what we're doing with tractors and nitrogen fertiliser somebody else in the world is going to produce the carbon. So is you, my question is, is UK net zero in farming 
is that really net zero in the world? Because, you know, we, we have carbon from other countries, don't we? Either importing it or it blowing across or whatever. My question is, can we be net zero? You know, I, you know even if the human population stopped doing anything, is it going to be net zero? I think we're going down a blind alley. And I think for my sector, I don't know where, I don't know, I don't know the numbers to say, you know, is there a magic silver bullet to this that is going to come in and say, you know, all your carbon sorted, don't worry about it. So I got way more questions than answers, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think we probably all have, and, um, and and even understanding exactly what net zero means is something that we're still all struggling with. And 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 how do you define it? Uh, because as you say, there's a there's a risk that you could, in isolation, uh, whether that's on a farm level or a, or a country level, become net zero. But if you're just exporting that problem somewhere else, then it it doesn't help the it doesn't help the world, does it? I think it's, it's, you know, we're a bit too fixated on carbon alone. I mean, it's, it's all about emissions as well, isn't it? So one of the key sort of me key measures in agriculture is methane. Although, that the, 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 you know, scientists have, have admittedly now got it wrong on methane. Methane, you know, uh, it, methane doesn't have the life that carbon has. So, you know, it, but, um, that, that it, it, it's not such a problem as they initially thought. But I think... Whichever way we, we tackle it, and I, I, I sort of, I get what Neil was saying. It's I can't foresee anything being carbon zero. To be honest with you, the, the fact that we get up in the morning, we will be burning carbon. But I think if we're all doing this collectively uh, to a goal of reducing emissions, I think British agriculture is going to be much better for it because we should be, uh, given the correlation between low carbon footprints and business efficiency. As an industry, we should be a, a much more efficient going forward. I would agree with that. It's a, it's about making a difference and making an improvement, and that, as you say, will help uh, with efficiency. And and you're right. We do talk. We tend to bandy the word carbon about as if it's 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 all encompassing. But um, whether it's uh, nitrous oxide or methane, then they the warming effect is much higher. Although they hang around in the atmosphere for a lot less time than the carbon, and so. I think these are always equated into a carbon a carbon equivalent, aren't they? Um, but that's sometimes lost in the way we talk about it, and we just talk about carbon. Um, I, I, one of the other key findings in the UCL report was about the importance of renewable and uh, bioenergy. And, um, and Neil, I know that you've got an AD plant and you've got some solar power on the farm. Um, how's, how's that working out for you? And, and, and what's your wider energy strategy look like? Yeah, well, we're completely self-sufficient in electric, but we still buy a lot of diesel. Um, I think there's opportunity there to use the gas that we run generators to make electric to run engines. The rather disappointing thing with it all is, for instance, Tesco carbon footprint. One of the reasons we're higher is they don't count renewable. They just look at your kilowatts and, and put a carbon cost to it. doesn't matter that it's produced here, whereas Arla do. So that's one big difference. So we, ours is only manure fed, our digestive, and it's 500 kilowatt. And we use about a third of it. So we export the other two thirds. But rather frustratingly, going back to the methane point of just now, so I asked the question, you know, what does a methane digester um what effect does that have on methane production of dairy herd? And I was thinking that's going to be 50%. And the answer is three to 5%. So it's, it, I think it's scary that when you look at 
we produce 500 kilowatt of electric from the methane that we waste, but, but even creating 500 kilowatts of energy, there's still 95% of it's going to atmosphere, which is quite scary, isn't it? <laughs> when you, at least, I mean, you could look at it the other way, well, at least we're sequestering, is it sequestering? I'm not sure what it is. We're not sequestering it, are we? We're sort of catching it and then burning it, which I guess means somebody else isn't drilling oil out of the ground somewhere in the world or burning coal or whatever they're doing. It's interesting that it, it's a great thing to have. Looking at the other end, you know, we've got all these things, you know, should feed seaweed and we reduce methane by 80%, apparently. But um, if we reduce all our methane by 80%, will there be any methane to run the generators? You know, I, and I, again, I'm ignorant. I don't know <laughs> whether, you know, you can get rid of the 80% and so it's not a manure, but will the, will the generators stop? Because there's no methane left in the manure. And it's, it's interesting how... And even more interesting, for the last 10 years in dairy farming, you've been able to get energy efficiency grants. So we don't actually need much electric anymore because we put in LED lights, we put in heat recovery, put in variable speed motors. We've done all of that stuff. So the government paid us to do that years ago, which is great because that means we've got more electric to sell. But it seems like policies maybe aren't all joined up. You know, look at the amount of ADs that have been put in for crop production and the amount of good arable lands that's got solar parks on, you know, it's, it, it all seems confused to me, the renewable sector. I, I think it is, I think it is bedding down. And I also think, as you say, as technology moves on, then hopefully some of these, these efficiencies will improve. But I guess it's back to the point we just made. For the moment, what we can do is whatever we're capable of that will make a, a modest improvement. Um, what about my other guests in terms of energy, either generation or conservation? Um, any actions that you've taken, taken or have got planned? A similar sort of um, similar idea to Neil. Where we've got irrigation, um, we've got variable speed drives on those now that we can sort of remotely switch on and off, which saves you know a bit of diesel here and there. But sort of reduced cultivation is our is our main one. In the grain store, we've got computer-controlled cooling um, based on uh, relative humidity and temperature, different differentials between you know the grain and the ambient air, and that all switches on and off automatically. So, so that saves leaving fans on unnecessarily, and that's that's definitely an advantage. But we haven't probably got enough in terms of solar solar panels here for renewable energy. We we don't really use a huge amount other than you know at peak harvest time. And we're not usually, you know, at the moment, the economics don't seem quite right for exporting the majority of what we would what we would produce. Now, whether that will change um, as as things go forward, I suspect they probably will, and we'll we'll look at that um, as a venture um, in the future. Yeah, interesting. Thank you, um, Paul, Paul. I think you've got a wind turbine on the farm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, living on top of a mountain does help. Um, so obviously what we have is an abundance of wind and an abundance of water. And, and to be fair, uh, quite a few of my uh, of my neighbours around here either has a, a small wind turbine or, or, or hydro schemes. You know, our wind turbine is only a 20 kilowatt, but yet we, because of the wind speeds that we have up here, we can export enough electricity to supply eight to 12 houses, uh, typical houses every year. So uh, what was interesting is because the wind turbine has... No, you know, it's a standalone business because it's not part of the farming business. The uh, the production of of energy that that machine produces 
has no correlation to our carbon footprint from the farm point of view. So that was discounted uh, 100%. But um, I think if I think there will be another renewable energy push, I'm sure there's going to have to be. Um, but in order for that to happen, planning and legislation has to be much more flexible. Um, I, I know um, we... My neighbours, quite a few of my neighbours have, have or try to have a hydro plant. Now, one of the biggest stumbling blocks with hydro plants, certainly in North Wales, was how much water that was actually flowing through that turbine. You're not using any water, i.e. the amount of water that goes through that turbine is exactly the amount of water that'll come out of it. So, you know, no water is evaporated. And yet they were putting unrealistic restrictions on flows of water for unbeknown reasons. So... Absolutely, it'll be back on the agenda. I'm pretty sure of that. And we, as farmers, have a have a role to play there. You know, we we can, we we will be part of the solution. But we we need the flexibility to be able to do that. Back to being coordinated and joined up uh, right right across the industry and local council and government, isn't it? Um, in, in order to make this as efficient as possible. Uh, uh, Richard, any any final comments on this from you, either from a generation or conservation? Yeah, we're fairly significant energy users on the pig units, um, requiring uh, no small amount of heating for piglets in the farin houses and wean piglets. And uh, on the three biggest sites, we've put in um, some sizable solar arrays. But you know, the help, the bills are still pretty large. That you know, for the farms um, where where we've invested in new buildings, that's certainly helped with uh, electricity the improvements in. Uh, insulation and fan control, you know, fair show pretty significant improvements over some of the aging infrastructure. And that's one of the things that uh, UK pig farms are constantly batting, battling with is the aging infrastructure and reinvestment against a background of some pretty high costs and, at the moment. But yeah, solar has been you know, a, a useful uh, help on those bills. Seems to be quite a bit of interest just recently. We seem to have got quite a few mail shots just this last sort of month on uh, companies looking for you know, fields for solar that uh, has sort of sprung up again, as, as Paul was saying. So, um, you know, we, we may, what we're sort of pursuing a couple of those at the moment to see whether um, we can get some benefits out of that. But yeah, we've also, um, the pig units used a few of the air source heat pumps, which mixed sort of results with them really There's some uh, i think uh, sometimes in the environment that they're on on, on a pig unit that they've struggled a little bit but uh, but the the play a part in keeping the bills down and uh, putting some uh, extra heat in yeah absolutely and and i i think as technology moves on then it changes the uh, the economics of whether whether some of these solutions make sense or not or to what extent that they do and um, so I'm sure it's a it's a moving feast. I, I think time has actually caught up with us now. So I would like to thank my guests for their uh, attendance today, for their openness and their insight that they've shown. Uh, I hope those listening have found it useful. Uh, there is some information regarding sustainability in farming on the HSBC's website on the agricultural pages. And you can, of course, continue the conversation by contacting your local agricultural relationship manager. Uh, guests, thank you for being on today and uh, everybody else, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit 
business.hsbc.com.